Now, if I showed up in church on a Sunday and I read in the order of service that one of the elements was going to be a brief history of the Protestant Reformation, I would laugh out loud. Let's see how the minister does. This is important because when we get to the sermon, you'll need to kind of have this a little bit in mind. So a brief history of the Protestant Reformation. So you don't need to think about anything but Europe and really just Western Europe. So wipe the rest of the world out of your imagination just for the moment. So we're talking about Europe and we're talking about a time from the year 326 when at the Council of Nicaea, the Christian world basically got together and they decided we need to kind of have something set down here in writing so that we can all go forward together. So a whole bunch of folks got together in 326 and they decided these were going to be what the Christian church was going to do and what it was going to follow. And it didn't change that much for the next 1,200 years. <laughs> 1,200 years. And in those 1,200 years, of course, we know there were some little spats back and forth, but mostly in Western Europe, it was the Roman Catholic Church that got to do what it wanted to do and got to say what it wanted to say. And it set up lots and lots of churches and it set up monasteries. And it was the center of learning for anyone who wished to read. You basically had to be in a convent or a monastery or you had to be a priest. And in those days, of course, most of the folks living in Western Europe could not read and there were not uh, widely printed uh, materials. The printing press had not come along. And so the church also controlled the Bible. It was only the priests who could generally read it and then they would distribute it to the people through the mass. Fast forward to about 1516. So we've had 1200 years of the Roman Catholic Church kind of feeling pretty comfortable, pretty fat and sassy. And they'd, uh, they'd gotten a lot of land in that time. They'd gotten a lot of money in that time. And boy, they sure liked their power. Well, one of the things that had happened was that St. Peter's Basilica in Rome had fallen into disrepair. And in 1516, the Pope decided that he was going to raise some money to redo the church there in Rome. And so what he did was he sent John Tetzel, who was a Dominican friar, and he sent him to Germany to sell indulgences so that they could rebuild St. Peter's Basilica. Now, an indulgence is kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card in Monopoly. You just pay for it, and you get it, and you get to hold on to it, and you can do basically whatever you want, and then you just turn in your card uh, when you're ready to be sorry. Well, this was the last <laughs> straw. See, I, this is pretty fun, huh? Right. <laughs> So the last straw, uh, this, this selling of indulgences was the last straw for Martin Luther. Martin Luther himself was um, a monk and he said, this is it, this has gone too far, I gotta do something. And so on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. Basically, this is just a big long list of all the things that are wrong with the Catholic Church. And, he thought that somebody would pay attention. Well, no, in fact, they did not pay any attention to him at all. The, the Catholic Church was mostly pretty happy the way it was. And what he was trying to do was he was trying to reform his own church. He didn't imagine that he would be founding a new church, but he wanted to reform his own church. Empowered by this idea of Luther's priesthood of all believers in 1524, there was a peasant result in Germany and that was actually what resulted in the founding of the Lutheran Church, 
once it got out to the people that there could be some changes made and there was this peasant revolt largely around land reform and the money that was being held by the church, Lutheranism then spread very quickly. It spread to Scandinavia and to the Baltics beyond Germany. Well, of course, at the same time, word's getting over to England, and uh, King Henry VIII had a little bit of a problem over there. Um, he was not too fond of his wife, Catherine of Aragon, who was a Catholic herself, and he decided that he was not really fond of Pope Clement's idea that he should stay married to her. And so he um, basically said, well, if I'm the head of England, then I may as well be head of the English church. And so he basically uh, kicked out all the priests. He, he took all those land holdings that were held and brought them in. Any fans of, fans of Downton Abbey here? <laughs> it's called Downton Abbey because it was one of these monasteries that King Henry VIII basically just took back from the church and said, all right, this is all mine now. So that's what he's doing there. He did get rid of Catherine, married a bunch of other women. We know that whole story. At the same time, 1541, John Calvin is in Switzerland, and he says, well, you know, if Luther and Henry VIII can get away with this, why not me? Um, he didn't really think that either of the two other guys had it figured out just right, and so he starts his own Reformed theology, uh, which we now know as Calvinism. And he's there in Switzerland, and it's starting to get going. And it spread quite quickly. It spread most principally to Scotland, France, Transylvania, and the Netherlands. So you've got these three basic strains of Protestantism that are going on. You've got Lutheranism, you've got Calvinism, and you've got Anglicanism. And they're all vying for different parts of Western Europe. Well, the Catholic Church was having none of this, and they decided that they would try and regain control. So they, they do the Council of Trent, but they didn't do the council like they'd done them before, which was kind of like spend a year on things and get it figured out. The Council of Trent actually went from 1545 to 1563. <laughs> so this is basically uh, moving at the speed of church. <laughs> and by that time, it was all done. It was over. There was no going back. You had Protestants everywhere. But the wars alone cost incredible amount of life, the religious wars between Protestants and Catholics. The Thirty Years' War alone may have cost Germany as much as 40% of its population with Catholics and Protestants fighting. So by 1551, when we meet Michael Servetus, who's the, the hero of our sermon, um, basically you've got Lutheranism, Calvinism, and Anglicanism vying for one another for power and also vying with the Catholic Church. Bet you're wondering what all the other religious folks in Europe are doing. They're basically staying undercover and getting out of the way. <laughs> Jews, Orthodox Christians, gypsies, um, Muslims, they're basically like, we got to head for the hills because it's bad here. And we'll hear a little bit more about that. It was not until 1568 in Transylvania when there was a ruler who decided that somebody in Europe should have religious toleration. And at the Diet of Torda, King John Sigismund declared that there would be religious toleration in Transylvania. He said basically that Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Calvinists, and Unitarian Christians uh, would coexist peaceably, and that Eastern Orthodox Christians, Jews, Muslims, would be tolerated under the law. 1568, the first act of religious toleration. 
Protestant Reformation officially extends to 1648 and the Treaty of Westphalia, which ended the Thirty Years' War. But the Catholic Church was never going to regain entirely its hold on Western Europe, and Protestantism would be a major force there for the next 500 years. How'd I do? <laughs> So imagine Geneva, Switzerland, 1551. Europe has made it through the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, the Italian Renaissance, and the Protestant Reformation with the Trinity still intact. Sure, there have been some minor skirmishes over this theological position, but all who dared to oppose the Trinity wound up in prison or dead. The idea of three persons in one, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, lacked biblical support, but it had been entrenched in Christianity for 1,200 years. Then along came a Spanish physician named Michael Servetus, who published two small books entitled On the Errors of the Trinity and the Restoration of Christianity. In these books, Servetus pointed out the extra-biblical nature of the, of the Trinity and proposed it be expunged from Christian theology. Nowhere, he said, does scripture put God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit together in such a way that they could be seen as a single God. But politics often shapes history. Both Martin Luther and John Calvin were trying to consolidate the strains of Protestant Christianity that had emerged from the Reformation. They were seeking legitimacy and political power. Lutheranism and Calvinism needed to prove that they were still Christian, just not Catholic. Moving away from the doctrine of the Trinity and the Nicene Creed at that moment in history to them was unthinkable. They needed to shut Servetus up and to move on building Protestantism. John Calvin warned Michael Servetus that if he ever got his hands on him, he would have him tried for heresy and burned at the stake for it. Thinking the world was beyond such barbaric ends to theological debates, Servetus underestimated Calvin's warning and went to Geneva on his way to Italy. When the city guards arrested Servetus and brought him before the city council, Calvin stood aside as the city fathers convicted Servetus of heresy. For opposing the Trinity, Michael Servetus was burned at the stake in Geneva in 1553 with copies of his offending books tied to his thigh. Sometimes it's fun to quip that Unitarian Universalists are the most Protestant of the Protestants. We can brag that we are so Protestant that we have reformed ourselves right out of Christendom. <laughs> Our ancestors' insistence on the continual reformation of religion resulted in many of the freedoms that we enjoy today and we keep, for push, we keep pushing for new reforms in our own time. Our church and our denomination are as active today in maintaining religious freedom as our Unitarian ancestors in Poland and Transylvania 
and England were in centuries past. In guarding religious freedom, we modern-day liberal religious folks owe much to the men and women, most of them unremembered, who fought for the right to believe as we choose. Because you see, it wasn't always that way. In Europe, during Michael Servetus's life, rulers determined the religion of their realm. If the ruler was Catholic, then the country was Catholic. If the ruler was Protestant, then the country was Protestant. And if he or she changed her mind somewhere in the middle, the whole country changed their minds with them. Our and let's see, where was I? Um, required Sunday attendance in state churches was the norm in those days, and notable groups like Jews, Unitarians, Anabaptists, Muslims, Quakers, pagans, and gypsies, or as Ro we call them Roma these days, these folks were left basically to fend for themselves, often with no recourse under the law. Each of these groups faced vicious persecution. Often marginalized groups were forced to flee from one place to another when kings and queens changed. We all remember how Queen Isabella drove the Jews, the gypsies, and the Muslims out of Spain at the very same time that she funded a little expedition by a man named Christopher Columbus. Heresy was simply not permitted in the 1500s, and any free thinkers were vulnerable to the ever-changing religious landscape. So what on earth was Michael Servetus thinking, traveling to Geneva in 1551? The religious outlaw, who is one of our dearest ancestors, displayed a plucky combination of self-confidence, optimism, and a belief in good fortune as his carriage took him closer and closer to his enemy, Calvin. If only, he had not, if only he had been met with an open mind, but he was not. Born in 1511, Servetus grew up in a unified Spain ruled by a fundamentalist Catholic queen. He experienced firsthand the results of the expulsion of the Jews, the Gypsies, and the Muslims at Queen Isabella's decree. He knew the terrible fate awaiting anyone unable to embrace Christianity. Conversion by the sword was very real. And he surely wondered why anyone would risk defying Christian leaders and rulers knowing that they might lose their homes, their jobs, and even their lives for it. His study of both law and medicine took his mind further from accepting religious doctrines, however, and more and more toward his own religious conclusions. When he found resistance among other religious scholars to even discuss his ideas, he wrote and published on the errors of the Trinity in 1531 when he was only 20 years old. Ministers denounced this banned book from the pulpits of Protestant churches. On July 17, 1532, the Spanish Inquisition ordered his arrest and he fled his home for France, never to see it again. Under an assumed name, Servetus lived first in Lyon and then in Paris. Reading various writings by John Calvin spurred Servetus to try his hand at theology again. He published The Restoration of Christianity 
which went even further in arguing against the Trinity. Eventually, a copy of the Restoration of Christianity made its way into Calvin's hands, and the hunt for its author resumed. David Bumbaugh tells the story this way. Someone in Geneva alerted the Inquisition that the author of this heretical volume was living in Vienna. Servetus was arrested and held in loose confinement. Arising early in the morning and under the pretense of using the privy, Servetus escaped over the wall of the palace where he was being held and fled the Inquisition for a second time. He was convicted in absentia and sentenced to death. For four months, Servetus wandered through France. He seems to have been attempting to make his way to northern Italy by way of Geneva, Switzerland. Inexplicably, Servetus drove into Geneva and even attended a church service where Calvin preached. At that service, he was recognized, not hard to imagine since he looked very Spanish among the Swiss. <laughs> he was arrested and charged with heresy. Though Calvin did not attend Servetus' trial because of ill health, he stood by while the town council and the Swiss church handed down a death sentence. On October 27, 1553, Servetus was led from his cell, bound to a stake, and with his offending books strapped to his thigh, was burned to death and his ashes scattered. So why does any of this matter to us? Why should we care about the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation at all? We should care, I argue, because if we forget the lengths our ancestors went to ensure religious freedoms, freedoms that then resulted in civic freedoms ranging from the abolition of slavery to women's suffrage, if we forget to fight for such freedoms in our own time, we, too, will face harsh consequences. The past is never past. There is nothing that we enjoy that has not been hard won. No good in this world can survive without those who wish to see it thrive. Just five years ago, on October 3rd, 2011, the city of Geneva, Switzerland, finally erected a statue to honor the memory of Michael Servetus. The life-size bronze statue that now graces one of Geneva's main squares shows Michael Servetus seated as he had been in jail, barefoot and wearing rags, with just a thin blanket for warmth. His hands are folded in prayer, for Servetus trusted in God clear to the end. Supporters of Servetus originally tried to get an earlier copy of the same statue erected in 1907, but it was rejected due to the continuing influence of Calvin's supporters. Even in 2011, they wouldn't admit it was wrong to burn Servetus alive or that Calvin was wrong in his vehement desire to see Servetus and his ideas killed off in that manner. Indeed, even at the unveiling ceremony, there were no official rep officials representing the National Protestant Church in Geneva, the Church of John Calvin. 
There were, however, representatives from the Roman Catholic Church. At least in the Western world, there have been religious upheavals approximately every 500 years since the time of Jesus of Nazareth. In 451 CE, the Council of Chalcedon split Christianity into two main groups, Oriental Orthodoxy and Chalcedon Christianity. Roughly 500 years later, at the Schism of 1054, Christianity was further divided into Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. In 1516, we saw the start of the Protestant Reformation, and now, in the first decades of the second millennium, we experience another seismic shift in religion when denominational identities seem to be crumbling all around us. Like Servetus, you and I will live through interesting times. We will not likely suffer as he suffered, but our attention to the changes will be no less important. A world as connected as ours is and as divided along lines of wealth and power will not wait long to see where the spirit moves it. Let us be numbered among those who will make the next 500 years more equitable and more just. So be it. Amen. <laughs>